Every client file is different and proper management is key for timely and effective client service and risk mitigation. In this program, Malcolm Heath, Practice Risk Manager at LawCover, and Malcolm Campbell, Principal at Coleman Gregg Lawyers, discuss the advantages of addressing client matters from a project management perspective and how this approach can manage risk and prevent errors. Hi, Malcolm. Thanks very much for joining today. No, my pleasure. Jumping straight into this topic, one of the main areas of claims we see at LawCover arise in the failure in communications between the solicitor and client, and that's representing 36% of all claims in this past financial year. We've identified the typical causes in this area of these claims, including the failure to advise or the client's instructions were not followed or not obtained, the retainer has not been properly defined, or there has been incomplete explanation of the advice. So Malcolm, how important is it for a solicitor to address the legal work from a project management perspective? Yeah, it's really interesting, Malcolm. You know, I think uh, a lot of lawyers growing up, uh, coming through the, the education system, have this romantic idea that uh, that the law is all going to be, uh, you know, fine suits and, and days in court cross-examining people and, and it's going to be about the the uh, the intellect of, of the law. But when you actually get into to day-to-day practice, it's quite... Uh, quite amazing it's it's almost turned on its head it, it really is i think m- more than anything a, a a project management role um that the law the technical law obviously is is very very important and and that is the the, the starting point for for all lawyers of course but um legal work uh, and legal matters are effectively the management the project management of, of a problem or, or an or an issue, so uh, I think it's absolutely critical, and and I personally believe that um, the most successful lawyers and firms uh, are those that um, identify the best way to manage those projects, the what the best way to manage them efficiently, uh, and the best way um, to structure their day-to-day work um, so we can plug some of those gaps that you you mentioned in the introduction about um, poor communications uh, with clients. Mm. And it is quite amazing that 36%, which has come down recently, which is good, it was up in the 40s Mm -hmm. for the last few years, but now down into the 30s, that 36% of all um, claims um, that law cover receive relate to poor communications. I, I was floored by that stat when I first read it many years ago because I always had the fear as a junior lawyer that um, I'd be um, subject of a claim because I didn't have all the answers yeah. or I didn't know the law yes. or something of a technical nature. Um, yeah, but I think the stats bear out. Yeah, it's it's and and I'm often asking um, lawyers when I I discuss this sort of topic, you know, what was your biggest worry? And and I would say nine out of ten say, oh yeah, not not knowing the law or, or not having all the answers. Um, so I, I think the stats bear out that as a profession, we're actually all quite smart people. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, where where we can fall down is in that communication yeah, yeah. piece. Um, and back ending that, that's often 
um, a project management, um, a byproduct, I should say, of, of poor project management. So can I just ask, if a um, solicitor, young solicitor starting uh, is looking at joining firms, what are the characteristics because of, of the firm or the principles? Because um, mm. if they're trying to identify that firm that's got that good project management skill set, how do they sort of find that out? Do they just sort of join and <laughs> hope? Yeah. Yeah, look, very, very good question um, because I think we all know in life, you know, there's a there's a, a big difference between perception and, and reality and front of house can look uh, all nice and shiny and, and glossy but then, then sort of behind the reception and into the working areas can be a, a totally different um, experience. Look, my tips, j- just through my personal experience, and, and this doesn't mean that, that it's always right, but my tips would be, um, do your research on the firm from from the outside looking in. But then um, if you get the opportunity to physically attend uh, an office and, and look in these COVID times, who knows how that recruitment process will, will sort of develop mm. and be, be tweaked. But if you do get the opportunity to um, physically attend the office during the interview um, process. Look at the office. Look at look at how it's organised. Look at how neat it is. Look at how the staff are managing files. Look at look at how um, things are organised in a physical sense. Um, I would tend to suggest that uh, a messy office environment is a, again a byproduct of uh, less than perfect project management. Mm. In the in the interview, um, ask. Uh, the interviewers, the types of systems that are being used, uh, whether they have uh, a focus on sort of uh, investment or reinvestment into um, the software programs. Hmm. As a junior, you might not know all of uh, the di- different programs, so do a bit of research about what are sort of the leading programs that law firms will use? What what practice management systems are out there? And that's probably getting a little bit technical, but more importantly for a lawyer on a day-to-day basis, what document management systems are they using? Simple things as what version of, of Microsoft Office are they yeah. using and, and things like that because it will tell you, uh, it won't tell you all the answers, but it will tell you what level of importance they place on providing an infrastructure and resources that enable you or provide you with tools to project manage your work. Yeah, great points. Thank you for that. And uh, coming into, say, the uh, matter side, how important is developing a working plan for the matter itself? Yeah, look, I think it's I think it's critical on a number of fronts. Uh, I think it's critical on um, the client side of things in terms of um, if you, as a client, walk in to a meeting with a uh, a lawyer and you bring your situation, and, and, and it's not always, unfortunately, I think lawyers are a little bit cynical and negatively focused sometimes. We're always associating things with problems. But if you, if you have a situation, it could be a positive situation, you're buying a property or um, you're going into business, and, and so it's not necessarily a negative thing, but you come into a meeting with a lawyer and all they're wanting to do is talk about the legal issues, many of which will probably go over your head. 
you're going to walk away from that meeting often more confused than when you started um, uh, and maybe sort of scratching your head at what value you got out of that whole interaction. So on the client front of things, I think it's very important for lawyers to think um, strategically but also from a, a, an analysis and a, and a working plan point of view, even when speaking with their clients. And that can be as simple as um, breaking your client interview, as well as the larger matter, but the, the client interview or conference down into sort of a, a middle, a beginning and an end. And, and the middle, sorry, the beginning is um, introdu- introduction, explaining um, why you understand the meeting has occurred, asking any questions that you might need to just clarify basic details and then saying, right, this is what we plan to do in this meeting during our time today. I'll, I'll get a bit more info out of you. I'll then um, provide you with some legal analysis and then at the back end we'll finish up with a bit of a strategy or a to-do list or who's going to go away and do what now. Um you'll then have a client that walks away going, ah, great, I feel like I now have clarity. Yes. From the matter management side of things, that's exactly what you should be doing with your, with your, your matter at the back end between you and your staff in terms of, right, okay, there's a, a beginning, a middle and an end with all legal issues. Um, what's our plan? Who's going to do what? When's it going to be done uh, by? What are the key deadlines? Those sorts of things. So... Um, I think uh, working plans are, are critical, and it, it's the whole thing of if you don't um, if you don't write it down, if you don't put it uh, in a physical form, whether it's electronic on a screen or, or on a piece of paper, it's very hard to keep track of it, um, and and you you can wander from that plan. So um, I would highly suggest a written working plan. It can be a one pager; doesn't yep. have to be. A complicated thing, um, and I I'm a big fan of checklists. Yeah. So uh, we developed um, many years ago um, uh, what we would call um, folder checklists because that was back mm-hmm. in the day when everything was quite physical. But I mean, it was the checklist was created electronically, so you can now just use it on the screen rather than than printing it out. But what it was was a skeleton or a map of each of the different key or or um, common stages of certain types of matters. So, for example, uh, if it was uh, an unfair dismissal matter, uh, you would have um, the initial stages, many of which were... Um, not strategic, but um, file management issues. When were instructions received? Mm-hmm. Who received them? What's the the date of dismissal? Therefore, flowing from what that, what is the f- deadline to file the application? Has the client been issued the client engagement documents? Have they paid the filing fee into trust? You know, very very mundane things, but all very important. They were set out in a chronological order. You, you could write some notes next to it. You ticked it off so that it's done and you initialed it. Um, you, you would, and then you'd break the matter down into, into each of what we would call the stages because there are distinct stages in, in legal matters, particularly disputes. 
So we use those as our working plans. And I am yet to come across an area of law where you couldn't create at least a basic checklist Mm -hmm. or or folder checklist for a matter. Even if it's only got five or six stages in it or or rows in the checklist, I can't think of an area of law or type of of legal matter where you couldn't create a, a workflow or working plan from it. And one of the beautiful things about having a working plan as well is it avoids scope creep. It helps yes. you um, estimate costs more accurately because you can see the level of detail that you need to go to. Um, there are also very good tools for supervising junior lawyers because you can see where they're up to uh, on the matter and rather than them running to you every five minutes saying, what do I mm-hmm. do next? You say, well, follow the checklist once you get to the level that you think you need some help, come and see me sort of thing. So the, the working plan, and there's no right or wrong way of doing it, but the working plan on a matter is, is a, an amazing tool at so many different levels. Now, so, would, uh, would, I'm, would you yeah. give the working plan um, to the client as well? Look, what we would do is we would, um, you certainly could, um, uh, there, there would be nothing wrong with doing that. You might want to pretty it up a bit um, or you might want to uh, frame it in a, in a letter of advice or um, have different advices at different stages of the plan. But certainly um, there would be nothing wrong with providing the plan. It is basically here's what we're going to do on your matter and here's the timeframes within which they need to be done. And I certainly have seen many firms um, provide advices along those lines and they're, they're very, very good tools. The, the client then knows straight up, okay, this is what's happening. It's interesting because it's this is the area of communications where we see the, the gaps and, as you're saying, um, that scope creep when there's um, it can be sometimes intentionally done by the, the client um, or unintentionally done because it hasn't been mm, clarified mm. as to what the law firm will be doing and what the client will be doing. Mm. And um, mm. what we typically find is if it's done incorrectly at the start of the matter, then that's where the claim will likely result because if it's wrong at the start, it cascades downwards with more problems. Yeah. So that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's been one of the banes of my existence as a lawyer, I've got to say, in terms of, um, look, costs are important. Um, Law firms exist um, to provide a legal service to their clients, but also to earn a living from it. So, I mean, I don't think there's any any shame in saying, well, well we do this to receive um, income to to yes. survive and live like any profession or, or job. Um, for, for whether it's rightly or, or wrongly, um, I think law firms have, have received a, a, a bad rap or, or a negative stereotype around um, fees. Uh, and I certainly think that some firms manage it better than others. But it is very difficult sometimes, particularly at the outset of a matter, to properly scope and cost a, a piece of legal work. Sometimes you just don't know mm. enough to, to give a full scope. And the rules and the regulations require you now to provide a, a, an estimate of the matter from go to one, and, and that can be very difficult. So... How can, how can lawyers or, or how can firms as a, as a general uh, approach that? Um, well, uh, again, a, a way that I've done it and, and firms that I've been involved have done it, which, again, doesn't make it right. It's just an example of how it's done. Is we take that working plan, 
which is quite detailed, and we adapt that to being the scope within the costs agreement. Mm -hmm. So because the working plan sets out what we're going to do, right? So, well, you can just use that as the framework for your scope in your costs agreement and then you add your pricing to it. Um, whether you want to go down to the minutiae of pricing each stage or just give it a total cost, look, that's up to the firm and up to the, the type of matter. But that's a great start, right? Like instead of just giving a two-line explanation of we're going to help you with your legal matter and give you some advice or you know, whatever you might say, you, you actually have, and it can even be in a table format <clears throat> which looks similar to your working plan, you know, a quite detailed scope of work. And the client, and so if you haven't given them that working plan um, during your normal communications, if you set out your fee structure that way in your cost agreement, um, they'll have it anyway because it's set out in that scope um, within the cost document. So that's that's a really good way um, that I think you can help. I'm not going to say it's not a magic solution, but help avoid scope yes. creep and help avoid the client saying, I didn't know you were going to do that and charge me for yes. it or I expected that you would be doing this and you haven't. Yes. Um, and that's a tip I often talk about with fee disclosures is very important to state what you are do, going to do and what you're going to charge them for, but I think it's equally important that you say what you're not going to do. Um, and I think the examples that I often give are, for example, in a residential conveyance, <clears throat> you might need to make a, an express note in your fee disclosure that you are not retained or this scope does not include reviewing the real estate agency agreement mm-hmm. or reviewing and advising on the pest and building report because the layperson will assume or could quite easily assume that those are elements of buying a property and therefore assume that the lawyer would deal with those matters and would alert the client to some potential issue if there was one in in either of those documents. Um, And so I think it's very important that if you're not going to do that work, that you say so in in your fee disclosure because um, it it can avoid a very nasty and expensive uh, argument with the client if they believed or subsequently assert that they believed um, that you were going to do that work for that. Yeah, that's um, an excellent point there. Thank you. Um, And we do see that arising claims. Some may not realise that it can be many years later when the actual claim arises from and advice that may have been 5, 7, 10, 15 years earlier. So when Mm. that scope of the matter isn't well-defined, there's a lot of ambiguity as to who was meant to be doing what. And um, as we see in in our claim statistics and communications, the allegation of failure to advise, the solicitor did not tell me, as close to a quarter of all claims, 24%. um, And that, Mm. as you mentioned, with good scoping clear communication, documentation and who's to do what um, helps alleviate that problem and we can, um, we can extinguish a number of alleged claims when there's appropriate documentation. Yeah, and it's, I think it's a real challenge for, for all lawyers, um, but particularly junior lawyers, because of that stigma that I mentioned before about lawyers and, and fees, I, I think that 
lawyers are, if I can make a, a generalisation here, typically um, fearful or stressed or hesitant to or uncomfortable to talk about these with their clients. And I think that then what can sometimes happen is it's just left to assumptions and implications rather than express discussions. And um, I think sometimes where that scope creep happens is that the lawyer is fearful of picking up the phone or sending an email to the client saying, hey, we've gone over the estimated budget or happy to do this piece of work but it's not really in the scope because the client's going to be dissatisfied, if I can use that politically correct word, as to any change in the fees or they're already, it's already, a, in inverted commas, grudge purchase for them. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. any discussion, any increase or change in fees is, is perceived to not going to be received well by the client. And so I think sometimes you know, the, the path of least resistance is to just say nothing, issue the bill at the end of the matter and, and hope there's no complaint. Yeah. And, and we all know that that doesn't work. It's a high-risk well. strategy. Or or oh, there's yeah. guilt and uh, the solicitor decides to do write-offs and so they're writing off yep. actually justifiable billings. Yeah. Um, and, yep. and it's a skill. It's a skill that you learn over time to be able to have confident, assertive, not aggressive, confident, assertive discussions with clients about fees at the right times. And I think that if you just adopt an open um, approach, because there's no mystery to it, right? We're no different to any other service provider. Does does a patient balk at paying the doctor's fees? Does does anybody question paying the dentist? No, of course they don't. So I think there just needs to be that open discussion of, uh, yes, legal fees can be expensive. They're not always expensive, but they can be expensive in certain circumstances. But what we hope to do as a firm or as a lawyer is show that what we're delivering to you is actually very good value for money. We will have open and free discussions with you about fees. We will let you know if anything arises that um, is going to change our estimate. Um, so it is a skill. Uh, you've got to mm. practice it. Some of the conversations are not pleasant um, and, and they're not pleasant at two levels. They're not pleasant with the client and then sometimes they're not pleasant with your superior in terms of budgets and KPIs and, and, and those mm. sorts of things. And that's often an unspoken um, issue that a lot of lawyers have about um, the pressure to meet their budgets, the pressure to meet their KPIs, which I think can sometimes, not always, but can sometimes drive the um, billing dilemma or the cost dilemma with the client is there's pressure on the lawyer to bill as much as possible and there's pressure from the client to keep the bill as low as mm. possible. So it, it, it is a very difficult tension. Yeah, very, very interesting. And... Uh... Yeah, excellent points there. I think um, some of the practice tips drawing from that is, it, well, it sounds such a motherhood statement on that clarity of communication, but we, we have to keep on reinforcing that message because this is where the claims do arise 
and to have that confidence in your your fees, I um, you know suggest to solicitors to look at them really focusing on the value of the work being done and communicate value to clients. Mm. Um, mm. Many solicitors that I speak to lack that understanding of communicating value because it's assumed it's assumed mm. that the work we do is very mm. good, very important, very helpful. Um, mm. The yeah. client needs to be told that, and even sophisticated clients, I think it's important to remind all clients of the value of the, 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 of the work that the firm's undertaking. Oh, 100%. And, and I think there's actually a bit of pressure sometimes the other way too. I, I think <clears throat> many lawyers, um, particularly junior lawyers, undervalue what they do. So, uh, and I think, I mean, look, you know, we don't have time to go into the history of the why, but I, I, I think somewhat because of the um, time-based billing system that has been so prevalent in, in, in the legal profession forever <clears throat> is that, oh, it only took me half an hour. Is that really worth the $1,000 that I quoted the client? Um, and the answer has to be in the work and the service that, that's provided. And, and unfortunately, um, uh, th- there is sometimes with junior lawyers the um, short selling of themselves, um, going, oh, oh, and I'll only put in half an hour time for that. I really should have done that within half an hour or um, oh, I don't feel like I can justify that. Mm. It's like, well, have the confidence in what you're doing, that it is um, high quality, that it is value for money, and then that will lead to you being able to have that conversation with the client about um, the, the value that you bring to the table. Uh, and coming back to one of the comments you made about the, the communication pieces, I, I don't know how many time I've spoken times I've spoken with junior lawyers that we've employed that are fresh out of, of college of law or whatever it might be, or they might be very early in their career. Um, and I'm, I'm talking to them about, look, law is, you know, you come out of uni thinking that the, the job of law, and I sort of mentioned this early on in, in our discussion today, that many people think it's going to be 95% um, researching, writing advices, standing up in court and, and advocating, and 5% all of the other bits mm. of admin. Well, yeah, it's not. And you learn very quickly that, in my opinion, being a lawyer is 95% about relationship management and project management and 5% about the law. Mm. Yeah, it's, the, 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 the entry-level threshold is you know the law, right? And so, yes, you might have to research things every now and then, and, yes, there is a lot of reading involved in, in law, but 95% of your time and effort in being a lawyer will be around... Um, administration, physical file administration, um, doing other working within the firm, whether it's on marketing or going to events or doing those things, and um, client management, client relationship building. It'll be 5% doing legal work. Um, And I think that if you can develop client relationship skills, the conversations about costs fade away into the back. You still have them, but they're not painful and the clients don't balk at it because you've already got a good connection and a good relationship with the client and you've built a certain level of trust. doesn't mean you can go and charge whatever Hmm. you want, but you've built a certain level of trust that the client will be saying, well, you know, John Smith, my lawyer, 
He's a straight shooter. He tells me when there's a problem. He'll pick up the phone. We'll have a good discussion. He, you know, I feel that his bills are fair. I, I, I perceive good value out of it. I'm happy to keep using them. Whereas if you have a situation where the client's saying, I don't understand what he says. I get these bills. They don't, I don't feel like I've got any value out of it. I don't really understand what's going on. I just get these really long letters. You know, that's when the client's not going to perceive the value. Um, so I think there there's some some really really important um, important skills and you know without getting too sort of academic about it, <clears throat> there's actually been quite a few studies in the medical profession around um, uh, medical negligence or what we would call pro- professional negligence claims, um, and it, it's quite amazing that um, the studies tend to bear out um, that the distinguishing features between doctors who had claims made against them and doctors um, that didn't have um, claims made about them had nothing to do with the, um, the skill of the medical practitioner in a technical sense or the services provided. It was um, how they talked to their clients, the time they spent with them and the explanations that they gave. There was, there was no difference in the quality of information given or the quality of the services um, provided. It was all around how they communicated with their clients, typically what you would refer to as bedside, bedside manner. Exactly, yeah. I've noticed some of those studies and it's um, fascinating to see that and the parallels within the legal profession as well on those communication skills. Look, I just... Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, like some of the things that they said, and I think Wendy Levinson, um, who's from the University of Mm -hmm. Toronto, is sort of one of the world's leading researchers in physician-patient communication. And in one of the studies that she did, they they actually selected a group of doctors. Half of them had never been sued and the other half had been sued at least twice. And the um, recording patient interviews of that group of doctors, the doctors who had never been sued spent more than three minutes longer per Mm. patient Mm. on average. They were more likely to make orientating comments such as, okay, what I'll do first is I'll examine you, then we'll talk the problem over, and at the end you can ask me any questions you might have. Um, Or they'd sort of ask leading questions like, oh, okay, that's quite interesting, can you tell me a bit more about that? And there'd be sort of a bit of humour and a bit more personalisation of what they were doing. They gave the same information. They provided the same service, but it was just the way in which they did it. And that was the only key difference between the two groups of doctors. It's it's, it's amazing. It is. It's fascinating. Um, I'm just going to move on our last topic on uh, file reviews and uh, your perspective on on their importance. How often should they be done and, and, and how should they be done? <clears throat> yeah, look, it's um, yeah, I'll, I'll go straight back to my earlier comment about laws. Ninety-five percent about um, about file management, client relationships, and and administration, uh, and that's this is file reviews is part of that ninety-five percent. It, it's not. Um, it might not feel like important or valuable time that you're spending, and you might not be able to put it down on your fee sheet or bill a client for it. Um, but it, it's really critical. Um, I mean, if you don't have some sort of system of 
file review, well, firstly, if you've got junior solicitors, how are you discharging your obligation of supervision? Mm -hmm. Um, But also, even if you are are all um, solicitors that hold practising certificates not requiring supervision, um, you're really just all working in in silos within the same firm. Um, So, yeah, look, I, I think file reviews are imperative. Um, it, it's a difficult question to answer how often should you be doing them and how should you be doing them. I think it's dependent on uh, the type of work you're doing because different types of work will have different life cycles. So residential conveyancing, very quick turnaround of a, of a matter. Um, I, I'm not therefore suggesting that <clears throat> you should do a review every five to six weeks so you capture every file. Well, no, that's that's not going to work. That's not practical. You're not, you're not ever going to get any actual work done uh, if you do that. Um, but you, your review system would probably have to make sure that you, you have a cross-section of all files um, at any point in time. Uh, I think it should be done, look, oh, depends on your resources mm. and, and, and how you're structured, but maybe once every quarter, maybe once every six months. Um, If you're doing a physical file review, as in taking a cross-section of files and then reviewing them in detail, yeah, look, I think if you're doing it any more frequently than that, it's a lot of time that you're spending on them. If it's a more informal review where you might say, you know, grab me your three most difficult files at the moment. Let's have a coffee and a chat for half an hour about them. Look, you, you could probably do that every couple of weeks or every month or so with, with your lawyers. Um, yeah, so it, it's very dependent on what it is that you're doing. Um, I think, though, what you need to do in a file review is you as a, as a firm need to identify what are the things that we feel are critical on each file Um to make sure that they are on track. Um, So I would be looking at things like, is there a cost disclosure uh, on the file? Uh, Is there um, something like, um, have we verified the client's identity? Um, Where are we at in the the fee estimate versus the WIP recorded or, or the fees billed? So that's your admin side of things that you're reviewing. On the legal side of things, um, you might want to be checking that there are relevant deadlines or limitation periods recorded properly in your in your practice management system mm-hmm. in, in, or in your document management system, depending on how that, that works within your firm. Um, and, and then you, you'd be wanting to, to look to see um, what sort of written advices might be on the file. So some firms will have standard advices that go out in, in set types of matters. Um, so you might want to be checking those sorts of things uh, as well. But I'd, I'd have a bit of a hit list of, say, eight to ten key things that you that you want to make sure are present on every file um, and just be able to uh, tick off on those as you go. Yeah, thank you. No, fabulous. That's um, excellent. I think that really is we could talk about this area for hours and hours. Um, But I'd like to thank you for your time to cover many issues about the matter and the matter management, particularly focusing on scoping and um, the the plan, the working plan as well. 
Mm-hmm. And as we come back to the critical component being the communications and the skill of these solicitors, communications, communicating effectively to the client and eliciting the right information from the client as well, of course, coming back to help reduce where we're at with 36% of claims arising from this area. Malcolm, thank you yeah. so much for your time today. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.